ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, thank you for joining us for episode one. We are Luke and Logan, and we are most definitely not unreasonably certain. I'm Luke. I graduated from Pomona College where I studied math. Um, I'm currently a math teacher in New York City. And I'm Logan. I also coincidentally studied math at Pomona College. And I'm planning on starting a master's in statistics in the fall. Huh. Seems like we got a similar background there. Yeah. Are you also interested in politics, education, the environment, sports, economics, and science? Um, funnily enough, I am. Which I think might make me a great candidate to be the host of this show, Unreasonably Certain. I think you'd be a great host for this show, Unreasonably Certain. Maybe we could dissect the use of statistics in popular media together? That sounds great to me. Let's do it. In this particular episode, um, we're going to analyze Scott Lucas's article, Los Angeles is the Face of Climate Change. They discuss base rates, contextualizing large numbers, how to communicate uncertainty, and how to use units appropriately. Okay, so we will start off by just reading through the uh, introductory paragraph of the article, and then we'll go into more detail as issues come up. So I'll start here. In July 2018, the air temperature in Woodland Hills, a Los Angeles neighborhood some 20 miles north of the Pacific Ocean, peaked at 117 degrees Fahrenheit. For 63-year-old U.S. Post Office carrier Peggy Frank, that Friday marked her first day back at work after recovering from a broken ankle. At 3.35 p.m., Frank was pronounced dead after paramedics found her unresponsive in her non-air-conditioned air truck. In September, the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office confirmed what seemed a foregone conclusion. Frank died of hyperthermia. She overheated. Okay, so this paragraph obviously sets the tone for the piece, um, starting by detailing somebody's death, and in some ways makes the outcome um, sound like a foregone conclusion. Like you, you already get the sense that this, the author is set on telling you that climate change is going to be very, very bad, deadly, in fact, and um, we can already tell um, what the conclusion is even before going into um, any scientific studies or statistical analyses. Yeah, and um, with kind of with my experience of articles like taking a real look at climate change um of these sort of variety of um uh issues that arise from uh the greater um problem of climate change one of those that comes up somewhat frequently is this idea of hyperthermia in older americans or older adults in general um so it gives you a sense of what sort of slant the author is looking at. Uh, I guess the questions that I had were, um, you know, ideally if they could have like sort of contextualized that sort of like it's a hundred, you and I might feel that 117 degrees is hot and it certainly is, but 
how is how common would that be in Woodland Hills um, at that time of year, and um, you know how frequently are like what is the sort of rate of hyperthermia in that in the population um, in that area or for that age group um, for that time of year? Yeah, I agree. Like 117. I mean, we're we're sitting here recording this. It's winter in New York. Is like way outside the scope of our immediate experience, um, but it may be that. And while 117 is definitely extreme, it may be less extreme than what it appears to be without, you know, more background knowledge. Yeah, I definitely remember some of those California summers getting close to 117 pretty frequently. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to second paragraph. You want to take this one? Sure. A few months later, in November, the Woolsey Fire swept through Malibu and parts of the San Fernando Valley. The blaze killed three and forced the evacuation of almost 300,000 people, burning 96,000 acres and destroying 1,643 structures. Then, after heavy rain and areas scarred by the fire, came the mudslides in December and January that killed one person and closed portions of the Pacific Coast Highway. All right, so... Um, they cite, or Scott Lucas cites three different numbers here in this art, this paragraph, evacuating 300,000 people, burning 96,000 acres and destroying 1,643 structures. Um, this citing these numbers does a couple things. One, it, it makes the scale sound really big. 300,000 is a big number. And then it also makes it like really specific. 1,643 exactly. So it gives you a lot of like credibility. Um, but that's a little bit misleading. So the, the two really big numbers, 300,000 people, 96,000 burnt acres of land, um, are, it seems like a lot, but how do, how do you really know how much that is? Like it, it's so outside of your ordinary experience that it's hard to understand what that really means um right like three hundred thousand could be quite a lot of people that could be a sort of small city like the entire population is evacuated or you could consider that like one portion of a larger city like obviously they give us some context through where the fire was malibu and san fernando valley but unless you're kind of familiar with or do like a little bit of extra work to figure out what the populations of Malibu and the San Fernando Valley are, that's sort of like could be a lot of people in one small area or um, not a small portion of what is a larger population. Yeah. Um, another thing is that these numbers are provided without their historical context or what you might call the base rate. So we know that wildfires occur naturally, you know, periodically, and it's actually healthy for the general environment to burn up the detritus. So, you know, the question is how much is this a deviation from the natural norm or what's ideal for the surrounding area? And without giving a baseline, you have no way to tell. Yeah, and we'll get into that a little bit more um, slightly further on in the article, but um, 
that's there's definitely numbers that exist and would I think even add to the article's um, convincingness, but just were kind of left out for whatever purpose, whatever reason. Yeah. One nice thing this this paragraph does do is use uses precision appropriately, so it cites exactly 1,643 structures that were burnt, um, but rounds the number of people and number of acres to, you know, like at the thousands, um, because those aren't those weren't counted, you know, precisely. So um, it it does do a good job of portraying like the level of precision there. All right, next bit of the article um, says, for most of the population, climate change is too big a thing to grapple with. As the theorist Timothy Morton argued, it's a hyper object. It is too big, too sprawling in time and space, and too complex to see fully from any single vantage point. It's numbing. But by narrowing our focus, we can catch more than a glimpse. It may be easier to understand climate change at the regional level, says Catherine Davis Reich, associate professor associate director of UCLA's Center for Climate Science. We can all appreciate what climate change impacts would be in our backyard and act on that much more than at the global level. Los Angeles, the second largest city in the United States, is perched precariously on the edge of the Pacific. Not long ago, it was the nation's frontier. Today, its cultural industries produce the globe's fi films, music, and television, always hunting for the next new thing. Here, the line between the present and the future has always been thin. As it swelters, burns, erodes, and collapses, that barrier may have been swept away altogether. For LA, 2018 was not a sign of things to come. It's a sign of things that have arrived. What do you say, Luke? Um, obviously great prose. Um, I guess the, one of the, the certain thing that I was thinking about is sort of at the end there, uh, as, as it swelters, burns, erodes, and collapses. Um, Anyone who's sort of familiar with L.A. and, and we live sort of close to L.A. for some time um, knows that there's just going to be some level of that um, always. Um, there will always be some level of wildfire and there will be some level of mudslide and earthquake um, and erosion just because of where it's situated on a fault line and what is a dry kind of Mediterranean climate and near the ocean. Um, so while I don't necessarily disagree that these factors are being uh, amplified, um, and in fact I would agree that they're being amplified, and we'll kind of get, al get along into that later on, um, uh, I would say you got to make sure that you kind of emphasize that specific part of the argument. Um, as opposed to saying it's completely like a new thing. Yeah, agreed. Okay, I'm gonna cut through a couple paragraphs here. Now it says, still by 2069, which is 50 years in the future, Los Angeles could well be on the way to a new season of misery. With the exception of the highest elevations and a narrow swath very near the coast, where the increases are confined to a few days, Land locations see 60 to 90 additional extremely hot days per year by the end of the century, one study concluded. Downtown Los Angeles could experience up to 54 days measuring 95 degrees or higher by 2100, a nine-fold jump. By then, temperatures in Riverside 
could reach over 95 degrees for half the year. So a couple of statistics here. Um, an additional 60 to 90 extremely hot days per year by the end of the century. And 54 days measuring 95 degrees or higher by the end of the century um, from another study and also over 95 degrees for half the year. So a couple different studies giving competing numbers all on the same issue. Either way, or whatever way you want to look at it, it seems like um, a very hot future is in store for Los Angeles. But still, the, the author here could do a better job of indicating um, the uncertainty in these estimates. So like that 60 to 90 number, the question is, how sure are they about that range? Is that like a 95% confidence interval? Um, maybe, but maybe not. Could be less, um, and, and that would be nice to know. And then the same thing for um, the statistic 54 days measuring over 95 degrees. Um, there, there is some intrinsic uncertainty about that estimate. You know, you can't know exactly it's far in the future. That's a projection about the year 2100. And the model that that's based on, you know, it has to make certain assumptions about the way the world works, which may or may not be correct. So that number 54 sounds, you know, very exact. It, well, it is exact, but it doesn't represent, you know, the uncertainty or variability in what might actually be the reality. You know, it's quite possible that there could, it could only be 25 days over 95 degrees, or there could be 100. Um, and just saying the number 54 doesn't tell you exactly how wide that variance is. Right, you know, it could be a really high chance, could be a low chance, and, and you could also say, well, how much above 95 degrees, 95 degrees exactly, 100 degrees, 115 degrees, kind of really changes exactly how dire those circumstances would be, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of doesn't really talk about what that really means for, well, at least at this point, what that really means for the people of LA, right? Um, you know, later on in the article, they kind of get to what that means, but um, uh, I would like a little bit more context for like how... 95 degree days will be um, impacting people. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, that's a pain <laughs> for it to right. be hot, like, all the time. But if it's just a pain, like... Right. Well, it says, so it says here, by the end of the century, the authors of the study found a distinctly new regional climate state emerges. This climate includes a new fifth season, a super summer, driving people indoors for weeks at a time, stressing the power grid with heavy demand for air conditioning and wreaking havoc on agriculture and by extension, the food supply. I would just like maybe a little bit more detail on what that looks like. Um, because there's sort of a variability between like, well, it's just kind of hot or, um, you know, certain foods are out of season on, in some months versus like, you know, apocalyptic famine. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. And it could be the case that they just don't know. 
Um, That's true. Like they don't even know how unsure they are. Um, but still it would be good to have a sense for how confident they are in the predictions. Uh, you want to read the next little bit? So uh, climate change plays favorites and the heat increase would not be evenly felt. In fact, this unequal distribution could create an environmental justice story, explains Davis Reich. Areas like the San Fernando, the San Gabriel Valley, or the Inland Empire, where extreme heat burden is already greater, are where the season of extreme heat will occur. Parts of the region that are arguably less well-equipped to deal with compared to places like Santa Monica. There's a dark irony there, since wealthier people produce more carbon emissions. People who have contributed to the problem the least are going to suffer from it earlier and more, Davis Reich says. So I want to just stop there. Um, there's a citation in the article for the argument that wealthier people produce more carbon emissions, um, which I, I want to point out this article does have really strong citations. I want to appreciate uh, send some appreciation to Mr. Lucas for um, those citations. Um but there is sort of, I have, I am familiar with this argument that those who have, the poor Americans who um, contributed the least to climate change feel its effects the most. And I definitely agree with that argument. Um, but it sort of could go in a little bit further as to why. Um, you know, there's sort of, if you put two and two together, you could think, well, like, uh, if you're poor, you can't afford air conditioning, for for instance. Um, you kind of have to make that leap yourself, mm -hmm. I think. Um, yeah. Uh, where are we here? So, uh, meanwhile, beaches in Los Angeles will be facing their own threats. Rising sea levels will attack the coast in at least two ways, inundating beaches and eroding cliffs. Our beaches are compromised, not just from overall sea level rise, but also coastal storm events, says Lauren O'Connor Faber, the city's chief sustainability officer. In 2017, scientists modeled the effects of sea level rise on 500 kilometers of shoreline in Southern California. A sea level rise of 0.93 to 2 meters, they predicted, would result in the loss of 31 to 67 percent of beaches in Southern California, including some of its most well-known. A separate USC study concluded in Malibu, both low and high sea level rise scenarios suggest that long segments of beach will essentially disappear by 2030. Yeah, so in that last couple of sentences, um, it said they modeled the effects of sea level rise on 500 kilometers of shoreline. So this comes from a study cited in the article. Um, it would have been nice if that Mr. Lucas could have just converted the 500 kilometers into miles. Um, if you're familiar with like 5Ks, you know 5K is 3.1 miles. So the scientists then, are more in meters, but yeah. Yeah, but I mean, he could have just done right. the conversion, you know. Put it in parentheses at least. Yeah. Um, like he took the 500 kilometers from the article, and the article, the original journal article certainly should have been in kilometers, right. standard scientific practice. But um, the readers mm -hmm. of this article on climate change are not scientists, they're lay people. Yep. And, and Americans. Yeah, and they're going to be more familiar with miles. Yep. So it's 310 miles. It gives you a better sense of <laughs> what it actually is. How far are you going to have to go? 
Okay. Um, beyond that, I want to say I looked into this particular article that he's citing. Um, and it's, as you would expect, very technical. There's the technicalities of the, the climate science itself. And then there's the technical aspect of the statistical and mathematical analyses that they have to run in order to like, develop these predictive models and make sure that they're actually you know, working reasonably well, that sort of thing. Um, so as a, as a layperson, you more or less just have to trust their conclusions, which is unfortunate. Um, that's kind of all I have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, big numbers make head hurt. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, definitely not... Um, the, I guess the other thing is... Um, well, they're going to go into the, the more implications if you keep going here. Uh, so those beaches are the basis for a lot of California's identity, said the first study's lead author, Sean Vitusik an assistant professor of civil and materials engineering at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Vitusik was part of another research project predicting that because of rising sea levels, sea cliffs in Southern California would erode on average up to 120 feet over the next 80 years. By comparison, the rate of cliff erosion in California over the past 80 years maxed out at 1.5 feet. At the end of the century, the model predicted an increase in cliff erosion of 27 to 185% above historically observed retreat rates. All right, so there, there is some wacky math going on here. It's not clear what exactly, how exactly you can resolve this issue, but let me just explain. So on the one hand, the, this, this article says that over the next 80 years, cliffs could erode on average up to 120 feet. By comparison, it says, over the past 80 years, erosion has maxed out at 1.5 feet. So the percentage increase over the next 80 versus the previous 80 would be 120 divided by 1.5. That's 80 times greater or 8,000% increase. On the other hand, this one sentence later, this article says, the model, model predicts an increase in cliff erosion of 27 to 185% above historically observed retreat rates. Okay, so on the one hand, we've just calculated that the increase is going to be 8,000%. On the other hand, the model says it should increase between 27 and 185%. It's not clear like at all to me how to reconcile these two things. Um, My... Thought was maybe that 120 feet was like the total. Well, there Versus is some... 1.5 feet is like each year, but that doesn't make. Yeah, it could be just that the numbers are being poorly communicated. Maybe like 120 is each year, and then 1.5 feet was each year. Still, it would be weird. Well, that's about 100%, right? Well, if they're both each year, it's going to be still at like an 8,000% or oh. times. Yeah. But mm. it does say, on average, up to 120 feet. Right. Those two phrases together, on average and up to... 
just seem very odd. It's not clear exactly what he's trying to communicate. So uh, the, the point here is um, there is some, you know, whatever the study is said, I'm sure it makes sense mathematically. Um, I'm just trusting the peer review process here. But what the article says by Scott Lucas does not make sense. So something got lost. Anyway. Um, so those changes put more than just surfers and beachcombers, beachcombers in peril. In 2060, sea level rise will likely put between 414 and 3,979 homes along the coast in the LA region at risk of flooding, up to $3 billion in value. Beach nourishment, artificially adding sand to bulk out the shoreline, is one option but may not be enough. The coast could be armored with seawalls, cliffs shored up, and seagates constructed. Fatusik says that a shoreline retreat strategy might be needed, but it won't be easy. Because there is so much money involved in all of this, people will fight tooth and nail to keep themselves on the coast for as long as possible, he says. Alright, so the beginning of that paragraph. He cites, or he says, sea level rise will likely put between 414 and 3,979 homes along the coast in LA at risk of flooding. This is silly, I think, to give such specific numbers, um, because he's talking about the year 2060, and I'm not sure how you're supposed to even know how many homes would be there on the coast in that year, much less be at risk of flooding. Like, you have to predict both the economic landscape or, like, physically what structures are going to be there, and then also, like, the effects of climate change. That, that's, like, a very hard analysis to make, and now you're going to cite very, very specific ranges, 414 to 3,979. This is just misleadingly specific. Um, and then the other th thing is that those numbers again, don't mean a whole lot without, like, more context. I think it's hard to imagine. Yeah, you got to assume maybe that's, like, the amount of homes that are there now, and he's, like, averaging how far the sea level rise will go based on the current number of homes. Yeah. But there, that's, like, an assumption that that will stay the same, which, yeah. like, may or may not be the case. Yeah. Um... And there's also sort of like a what is $3 billion in value? Is that like the real estate value? Is that sort of the structural value? And like, how will that change, right? Because if your home is going to get flooded, presumably your real estate value is going to just decrease. So will it be $3 billion in value in 2060? Or will it be $1 billion in value? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um. Yeah, on the one hand, the three billion is—I don't know—it's like so big as to be ridiculously intangible. But I think in this case, it's really the only way to capture, like, how much commercial activity is actually going on in the area, and you know how densely populated it is and whatnot. So it, it may be like the best metric that they can really give for, you know, telling what the, the actual effect would be. Right. So, next piece of the article. 
says, and as the coastline advances, the forests around Los Angeles have already begun to burn. In December 2017, a series of 27 wildfires ignited in Southern California, including the Thomas Fire, which burned more than 281,000 acres across Ventura and Santa Barbara counties, resulting in two deaths and the evacuation of more than 200,000 people. Less than a year later, the Woolsey Fire burned 96,949 acres, spreading south from the mountains into Malibu, where it destroyed hundreds of homes and killed three people. If you think of 1994's Northridge earthquake as LA's signature disaster, the coming decades may make you reconsider. Because while climate change may not have much effect on earthquakes, it will lead to more and more destructive wildfires. The area burned by Santa Ana fires is predicted to increase by 64% by the middle of the century compared to 1981 to 2000, while non-Santa Ana fires, which occur from June to September and are concentrated inland, increase by 77%. The number of structures destroyed will rise as well, 20% for Santa Ana fires and 74% for non-Santa Ana fires. Santa Ana fires currently threaten 3,400 structures in an average year, while non-Santa Ana fires put 440 structures at risk per year. So one nice thing about this piece is that it does give you a comparison to the historical baselines. Um, it cites like the period 1981 to 2000 and compares that to, to what's projected to come. So that's good. It does contextualize the numbers. Uh, another nice thing is that it gives um, percentage changes rather than like the raw increase. Um, because when you're dealing with like raw numbers, sometimes it's hard to understand know exactly how much that is, but percentage you know always varies between zero and a hundred, so you get a relative sense of how much things are changing. Yeah, I did a little bit of a deeper dive on this um, on the studies that were cited uh, in this portion of the article, and um, it was a really fascinating study. Partition the um, Santa Ana fires and non-Santa Ana fires by sort of a meteorological look. So. Um, Someone that has once smelled Santa Ana fires burning on the wind. Um, those are from October to April. And non-Santa Ana fires are from June to September. So they actually have quite different characteristics. Um, the Santa Ana fires were 80% 80, 80 of uh, monetary losses, whereas um, the non-Santa Ana fires had 70% um, of the suppression costs. Um, this is because the Santa Ana fires happen to burn in areas that are um, a, a little bit more expensive. So you might say that the uh, Santa Ana fires are for the revolution, uh, whereas the non-Santa Ana fires are um, uh, capitalists, I guess. Um, the area of both of the fires are about the same, though. Um, so um, the non-Santa Ana fires happen to burn a bit longer uh, and at higher elevation using um, age-dependent fuels. So because of when they happen during the year, it kind of really depends on what there is to burn at that time of the year. Um, it's a little bit more of the dry season. 
Um, the total economic losses were measured at $3.1 billion in the study, which came from structures destroyed, um, damaged, and fatalities, as well as suppression costs. Now, the thing that I was kind of interested in was because uh, it came up a couple times during um, Mr. Lucas's article, was how they measured uh, structural damage, uh, structures in general, and the cost of these structures. And at least in this particular study, they took the 2000 census for population density and median home value. So they kind of just estimated it based on how many people live there generally, meaning that a certain number of structures basically have to be in place for that many people to live there. Mm -hmm. And then said, well, on average, they cost about this much. They took the median home value, though? They did. Um, I, so, I, it, you know, there could be some outlier values, I guess, of, um, you know, a multi-million dollar mansion that got destroyed that wouldn't be necessarily counted. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, often you want the median precisely because it is right. somewhat immune to those outliers. Yeah. But in this case, you don't want that. Like, you want to account yeah. for the extra value, or maybe you don't, actually. It depends. Maybe, maybe it you depends. want to add, yeah. I guess it depends on if the problem you feel like is more a lot of people getting their homes burned down versus, like, one really rich guy getting his home burned down. And, yeah. You know, yeah, so there are, like, some ethical considerations in the way that you do the computation yes for sure interesting um and probably kind of well that sounds a little um you know just for fun's sake that probably is a big consideration as far as insurance purposes go like how you do that calculation probably affects uh insurance rates for fire damage i would i would wager um, and also, you know, for instance, like the 2000 census is uh, almost 20 years old at this point. So, yeah, it would be up. interesting to see if insurance companies have done like any internal modeling of this stuff. Like, uh, I would yeah. honestly trust like their studies more because they have skin <laughs> in the game, like over, you know, in academics. Well, it depends, right? Because on a certain level, they have more value riding on this one on another level they have more value riding on this so they kind of want to make it seem like um the home values are lower um uh anyway where was i so um well that's the other idea right so this is a mediterranean climate um uh, looking at santa barbara ventura la san bernardino orange county riverside county and san diego so it's sort of a large swath of populated Southern California. Um, and the study found that Santa Ana fires were faster, closer to urban areas, and the more expensive housing. So, and so in a certain sense, you might say those are probably the bigger issue, right? If they're faster and closer to urban areas. I, it's kind of funny to say the pricier homes can go first, but um, they tend to actually just impact more people. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the takeaway is like, um, while it would be nice to not have a large area of Southern California burning up, the real concern for like 
people who actually live there is like, and are they personally going to burn in these fires? Uh-huh. Um, uh, so they actually were able to estimate um, fire probability for um, the areas that they partitioned out um, by doing the percent that it of the area that um, burned over the complete available area and in their model only used data for um, uh, partitioned areas where the probability was greater than 0.5 and did a regression model for 23 variables for possible causation Mm -hmm. essentially and the regression model in like all variations of their models showed that um the percent burning was going to just increase over time. Mm -hmm. So the numbers all check out um, that there will be more and more fires. And and we sort of anecdotally see that, but it's kind of nice to be able to slap a number on it um, and say the math math checks out. Okay, interesting stuff there. The next line in the article basically sums up everything Luke was talking about. It says, eventually, all that risk adds up. And use of that word risk is interesting to me. Um, I would have liked to have seen more discussion of what you might call tail risks. So um, that word tail comes from visualizing a probability distribution function. Um, most people will be most familiar with like the normal normal distribution or a bell curve. So if you have that in your mind, then off to the edges, left and right, those are called the tails of the distribution. Um, And so a tail risk would be a risk like, you know, off to the edge, like very extreme. And in general, this article tries to quantify or or express like what we could most likely expect um, in 2069 or 2100 but in many ways it'd be very valuable to know like what the worst case scenario is like what's what's the tail risk going to look like um because that's what you ultimately like need to be you know somewhat prepared for um and then also knowing that might make um what's most likely to happen seem you know less scary it's still the same bad outcome, but um, in comparison, you know, it might seem like more approachable and um, like something that, that's easier to adapt to. Um, okay, so then the article goes on. One thing that often gets lost is that wildfires are perfectly natural, Davis Reich says. These landscapes were made to burn and need to burn periodically to be healthy. When we build into our wildlands, there's a risk that our buildings will burn. We have to confront that more seriously than we have in the past. So here um, we get introduced to a confounding factor that's not really present in the rest of the article, which is that the amount of damage that's done by climate change is not like a fixed amount. It's dependent upon where humans choose to live 
and the lifestyles that we choose to live, both individually and collectively, and also even what we consider to be damage. Um, so, you know, one probable effect that's going to happen over the next couple decades is that a lot of people are going to be forced out of what was previously wild habitat. And while that will be very inconvenient for them, um, it will also mean that humans are no longer infiltrating that part of the environment, which later on down the road might be a good thing. Yeah, it's always kind of funny when someone asks me, like, well, why is climate change bad? Like, why should I care? And, like, on a certain sort of existential level, like, you know, the world will keep spinning, right? The rocks will stay the same. Um, you know, the rivers will flow maybe in new directions. But um, a lot of the impact is just, like, how crappy our lives can be or could or sh should be. Um, you know, where we have to live. Um, to me, the more what's sort of left out of this article, primarily because it's not really the focus of the article, is sort of the, the impact on the animals and flora and fauna that um, are living in these areas and, you know, more generally around the globe. Like the impact on those creatures is sort of something you might argue is like not really their fault, right? The polar mm -hmm. bears didn't do anything to uh, ask for their habitat to be um, reduced. And moreover, they don't have any agency in the situation. Like, they can't run statistical model models and to project like what's going to happen <laughs> and know that maybe they should move. Right. Um, you know, they they can't um, <laughs> they can't uh, carbonize. Uh, to um, reduce the amount of uh, CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, but there is a certain question of like, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't live in an area where like fires are just going to happen regardless. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's definitely something to think about that um, is sort of a more greater question. Like, it's almost kind of an unanswerable question in a certain sense, but uh, it's something that comes up. On a related note, I think the way a lot of these like scientific studies make it seem like the future is inevitable, and maybe the environmental future, like the actual global temperature and climatic patterns and stuff, maybe that is mostly inevitable, but the effects that it has on human society isn't necessarily right. like. Earlier in the article, we saw an estimate of $3 billion of damage to a coastline in Los Angeles due to like rising, due to flooding and stuff. Um, but it doesn't have to be $3 billion of damage. Like, if people didn't live there anymore, you know, if there was, yeah, yeah if there was nobody there, there would be no economic damage. It would just be land had sunk into the sea and no one would care. <laughs> so, I mean, that's like, I'm not saying that everyone in Los Angeles should just move, but <laughs> the point is like humans have agency and yeah. you know, the, the impacts of climate change on us are not necessarily inevitable. Yeah. And they sort of get into that later. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, next couple paragraphs. 
After fires destroyed a neighborhood in the Bay Area in 2017, local politicians debated the wisdom of rebuilding homes in high-risk areas. There was little appetite for such a move there, or for similar efforts in parts of Southern California, but eventually it may become too expensive to continue rebuilding in high-risk spaces. The Los Angeles Times mapped the 1.1 million buildings in California located in zones at highest risk for fires, showing clusters in the Santa Monica Mountains, the Palos Verde Peninsula, Mission Viejo, and Yorba Linda. Nearly all of Topanga, Paradise, and Malibu were also at risk. Few political leaders want to discuss managed retreat yet, but in 50 years, they may have to. Climate change is no longer on the horizon. It has arrived. The master stroke that allowed Los Angeles to grow may be the one that causes it to retract. Los Angeles depends on imported water, whether from the Owens Valley or farther abroad. As the globe warms, those supplies will dwindle and become harder to manage. 60 to 70% of the water used in Southern California comes from the San Joaquin River and Tulare Lake Basins, the Sacramento River Basin, Mono Lake, and the Colorado River Basin. The bulk of the remainder is pumped local groundwater. Of that, 75% is drawn from spring snowmelt from the Rockies, the Sierra Nevada, and other mountain ranges. So um, we wanted to give a little bit of a uh, tip of the cap to uh, Mr. Lucas here. The use of percentages is really nice. You could have given um, just a raw number of gallons, uh, but that would have kind of been a little bit not could have been a little bit more misleading um, because gallons, especially in large volume, um, it sort of becomes a little unfathomable. Like we know what a half gallon is, but what does you know thousands or millions of gallons look like? Mm-hmm. Um, particularly spread over like what is like the United States' second largest metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually quite a lot of water, um, like a large portion of, and that could have been actually. Um, Something they might have wanted to add here is um, a, a large portion of the spring snowmelt from the Rockies is used for uh, groundwater, and they could have um, that could have even enhanced the argument here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, the fourth national climate assessment released in November 2018 projected substantial reductions in snowpack, less snow and more rain, shorter snowfall seasons, earlier runoff, and warmer late season stream temperatures. Snowpack reduction in Southern California mountains could reach as high as 50% by the end of the century. At the same time, water flow in the Colorado River could be down 35 to 55%. Yeah, so again, he uses percentages, um, which is nice instead of, you know, the whatever ridiculous number of gallons those percentages equate to makes it easier to interpret what's really going on. Um, Here he cites, he names the actual study that the data comes from. It's the fourth national climate assessment. He cites like 10 other studies in the, over the course of this article. And it's not clear to me what the point of naming this particular one is, as opposed to the others. I think it's just because this one has a nicer, more intelligible name and lends like some credibility to the argument, but yeah, maybe just to mix it up. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Um, 
water demand in 2050 is projected at 1.4 million to 1.7 million acre feet per year, while supply is projected at 1.4 million acre feet per year. At best, it's break even. At worst, well, ask Cape Town. Luke, what's an acre foot? So an acre foot is a, a hydrogeologist's particular way of measuring volume of water. So acreage by feet down. Um, so essentially they're saying that we have of this specific type of volume, 1.4 to 1.7 million amount um, per year, well, the supply is 1.4 million amount per year. Uh, we measure vo volume of groundwater this way because we tend to be looking at groundwater over a certain amount of acreage uh, because it's spread out over the watershed. Um, so it's something you tend to see in like geological data, um, which I'm assuming is where this study, yeah, this study came from, um, uh, a Los Angeles basin study prepared by the U S department of the interior bureau of reclamation. So that would be uh, a lot of geologists who are, uh, and hydrogeologists in particular who are writing this study. So they would be presenting it in terms of what a hydrogeologist would think of in terms of amount of water. Yeah, I guess, I mean, these numbers are already very big, 1.4 million to 1.7 million when you're using a unit that's very big, an acre foot. So it, I guess it does make sense to use such a large unit because the numbers would be even much bigger if they were measuring in like gallons or yeah. liters or something. And I guess the point is just to compare the two and say, oh, wait a second, they're um, kind of the same, or demand might outstrip supply. Um, and it kind of points to Cape Town, which near to day zero, which is what they call the like break even, um, when water supply, or like re reserve water supply is gone. Um, they didn't quite reach day zero in Cape Town, um, but... Uh, it's certainly a point of really rising political um, tension in that area, um, which is a, its own sort of fascinating um, topic. Um, but I guess he's sort of hinting at when water runs out, what is L.A. going to do and how are they going to manage it? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a huge potential problem, but I'll just reiterate my previous point, which is that this takes a sort of fatalistic perspective on the, the issue. There are ways to potentially decrease demand or to increase supply, you know, from other sources. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's not like as things get worse, people are just going to continue using, you know, supplying and demanding water in exactly the same way that they currently do. Yeah. The economy will evolve to adapt to... And that's part of why... Cape Town never reached day zero. Part of it was because it actually rained before that happened. But um, part of it is because they did really radically reduce water supply. And it actually would have been kind of interesting if they had gone into that a little bit more because that does come up with its own um, entire discussion. Maybe they didn't have room to discuss it here, but it comes up with its own sort of rich discussion of like how are you going to 
reduce water mm-hmm. demand um, and how that follows along um, economic lines where um, sort of wealthier landowners are like using water to like water their front lawns yeah. and like they could really just not do that if yeah. they wanted to. Um, sure. Okay. So moving on. And those estimates may underrepresent the risk to LA's water supply. A 2015 study concluded that the mean state of drought in the late 21st century over the Central Plains and Southwest will likely exceed even the most severe mega drought periods of the medieval era, causing, quote, an unprecedented fundamental climate shift with respect to the last millennium. Another study conducted in 2016 found, quote, a pronounced increase of droughts and aridity in the Southwest during the latter half of the 21st century. A mega drought, one that would last multiple decades, could become commonplace. Droughts of that magnitude were associated with collapse of the Angkor, Anasazi, and Maya civilizations. The implication being that our society <laughs> is going to collapse due to lack of water. Well, lack of water would be a big problem. I would like to know, uh, and they did link the study, but I would have liked them to include like what is a mega drought, um, mm-hmm. and how how can we compare. Uh, a modern mega drought to the mega droughts that collapse three different societies. Like, would it be a mega drought of the same magnitude? Would it be less magnitude? Can modern technology assuage any of the effects of a modern mega drought? Um, the sort of things that are kind of left to, like, if you want to pull your own research. Um, but certainly... Um, Dire circumstances would be a mega drought for the LA area. Okay, so I'm going to skip a couple paragraphs here. As the article winds down, it ends on a more positive note. Scott Lucas writes, So the city is building up local water supplies and curbing demand, increasing the tree canopy, and building out cooler infrastructure to reduce its heat island, spurring the installation of solar power, and armoring its beaches in the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. Progress has already been made. Emissions at the port have dropped by double digits. Tens of thousands of electric vehicle chargers have been installed, and improvements in public transit are coming. So this is nice. Um, But the rest of the article has cited lots of specific numbers and particular studies and this part doesn't cite any. Um, and so it's kind of like, what's the deal? Why Why does the negative news have to be very specific and data-backed while the positive is just right. sort of vague? Part of me worries that this because it's not as positive as we'd like it to be. Yeah, uh, You know, like the improvements in public transit are like, it's linked, but as like planned projects that like, they're going to have a different, a better Metro card. Right. Like, you know, <laughs> no one no necessarily knows if they're going to happen yeah. um, or when they're going to happen. I mean, some of the, like, we skipped over some of the planning, but some of the planning is for, like, 2045, which is quite a ways down the road. Yeah. Um, so that would, I guess, be the, like, negative view of the lack of statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, I would wonder where we can find some of this information, um, like emissions at the port in particular. Would have been nice to get like some real data on that. Um, 
but you're right. There's a lot missing there. Yeah. On on the one hand, again, in favor of his choice to leave out the statistics, like the rest of the article talks about a couple of recurring issues like fire, rising sea levels, you know, water supply. This brings up like a host of other environmental related things like um, increasing the tree canopy, um, installing solar power, um, and then it, uh, emissions. Like those are all separate things. And, you know, there's not necessarily room in the article to contextualize like how each of those is going to have an impact on the overall environment and right. you know, the people living there. So it may not actually make sense to go into more detail on each of them. Yeah, you could really write like multiple volumes on. Yeah. You know, like they were talking, they were even talking about it. It affects everything. It's a hyper object. Right. <laughs> um, Love that word. So, uh, well, so we gave you a piece of this, but um, certainly not uh, the whole story. So if you want to give us some comments or questions, um, We'd love for you to reach out through our website or social media. Um, we want to thank uh, Scott Lucas for his article. Uh, I know I really enjoyed it. We I know we picked it apart a little bit. But it's actually very well done. That's one of the reasons why we picked it. Yeah. Is because it's, there's enough substance there to actually pick at. Yeah, a lot of substance, actually. Yeah. Uh -huh. Um. So, yes, thanks to him. Thanks to you guys for listening. Uh, in addition, if you have suggestions for articles that you would like us to analyze in the future, contact us at unreasonablycertain at gmail.com. Make sure to like and subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, and we'll catch you next time.